0: Section 3 of Woman in the Nineteenth Century This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Women By Margaret Fuller Woman in the Nineteenth Century Part I. Preface to Woman in the Nineteenth Century The following essay is a reproduction, modified and expanded, of an article published in The Dial, Boston, July 1843, under the title of The Great Lawsuit, Man vs. Men, Woman vs. Women. This article excited a good deal of sympathy, and still more interest. It is in compliance with wishes expressed from many quarters that it is prepared for publication in its present form. Objections having been made to the former title as not sufficiently easy to be understood, the present has been substituted as expressive of the main purpose of the essay, though by myself the other is preferred, partly for the reason others do not like it. That is, that it requires some thought to see what it means, and might thus prepare the reader to meet me on my own ground. Besides it offers a larger scope, and is in that way more just to my desire. I meant by that title to intimate the fact that, while it is the destiny of man in the course of the ages to ascertain and fulfil the law of his being, so that his life shall be seen as a whole to be that of an angel or messenger, the action of prejudices and passions which attend in the day the growth of the individual is continually obstructing the holy work that is to make the earth a part of heaven. By man I mean both man and woman. These are the two halves of one thought. I lay no especial stress on the welfare of either. I believe that the development of the one cannot be effected without that of the other. My highest wish is that this truth should be distinctly and rationally apprehended, and the conditions of life and freedom recognized as the same for the daughters and the sons of time, twin exponents of a divine thought." I solicit a sincere and patient attention from those who open the following pages at all. I solicit of women that they will lay it to heart to ascertain what is for them the liberty of law. It is for this, and not for any, the largest extension of partial privileges that I seek. I ask them, if interested by these suggestions, to search their own experience and intuitions for better, and fill up with fit materials the trenches that hedge them in. From men I ask a noble and earnest attention to anything that can be offered on this great and still obscure subject, such as I have met from many with whom I stand in private relations. And may truth, unpolluted by prejudice, vanity, or selfishness, be granted daily more and more as the due of inheritance, and only valuable conquest for us all. November, 1844 Woman in the Nineteenth Century FRAILTY, THY NAME IS WOMAN. THE EARTH WAITS FOR HER QUEEN. The connection between these quotations may not be obvious, but it is strict. Yet would any contradict us if we made them applicable to the other side, and began also, FRAILTY, THY NAME IS MAN. THE EARTH WAITS FOR ITS KING. Yet man, if not yet fully installed in his powers, has given much earnest of his claims. Frail he is, indeed! How frail! How impure! Yet often has the vein of gold displayed itself amid the baser ores, and man has appeared before us in princely promise worthy of his future. If, oftentimes, we see the prodigal son feeding on the husks in the fair field no more his own, anon we raise the eyelids, heavy from bitter tears, to behold in him the radiant apparition of genius and love, demanding not less than the all of goodness, power, and beauty. We see that in him the largest claim finds a due foundation. That claim is for no partial sway, no exclusive possession. He cannot be satisfied with any one gift of life, any one department of knowledge or telescopic peep at the heavens. He feels himself called to understand and aid nature that she may, through his intelligence, be raised and interpreted, to be a student of and servant to the universe spirit, and king of his planet, that as an angelic minister he may bring it into conscious harmony with the law of that spirit. In clear, triumphant moments, many times, has rung through the spheres the prophecy of his jubilee, and those moments, though passed in time, have been translated into eternity by thought, the bright signs they have left hang in the heavens as single stars or constellations, and already a thickly sown radiance consoles the wanderer in the darkest night. Other heroes since Hercules have fulfilled the zodiac of beneficent labours, and then given up their mortal part to the fire without a murmur. While no god dared deny that they should have their reward, Siquis tamen Hercule, sequis forte Deu, doliturus ecrit, Dia premia nolet, sed merisse dari in invitus quae probabit, asensere dei. Sages and lawgivers have bent their whole nature to the search for truth, and thought themselves happy if they could buy, with the sacrifice of all temporal ease and pleasure, one seed for the future Eden. Poets and priests have strung the lyre with their heart-strings, poured out their best blood upon the altar. Which reared anew from age to age shall at last sustain the flame pure enough to rise to highest heaven shall we not name with as deep a benediction those who if not so immediately or so consciously in connection with the eternal truth yet led and fashioned by a divine instinct serve no less to develop and interpret the open secret of love passing into life energy creating for the purpose of happiness The artist whose hand, drawn by a pre-existent harmony to a certain medium, moulds it to forms of life more highly and completely organised than are seen elsewhere, and by carrying out the intention of nature, reveals her meaning to those who are not yet wise enough to divine it. The philosopher who listens steadily for laws and causes, and from those obvious infers those yet unknown. The historian, who in faith that all events must have their reason and their aim, records them, and thus fills archives from which the youth of prophets may be fed, the man of science dissecting the statements, testing the facts and demonstrating order, even where he cannot its purpose. Lives, too, which bear none of these names, have yielded tones of no less significance. The candlestick set in a low place has given light as faithfully, where it was needed, as that upon the hill. In close alleys, in dismal nooks, The word has been read as distinctly as when shown by angels to holy men in the dark prison. Those who till a spot of earth scarcely larger than is wanted for a grave, have deserved that the sun should shine upon its sod till violets answer. So great has been from time to time the promise, that in all ages men have said the gods themselves came down to dwell with them, that the all-creating wandered on the earth to taste, in a limited nature, the sweetness of virtue that the all-sustaining incarnated himself to guard, in space and time, the destinies of this world, that heavenly genius dwelt among the shepherds, to sing to them and teach them how to sing. Indeed, der Stets den Hirten nadig sich bewies. He has constantly shown himself favourable to shepherds. And the dwellers in green pastures and natural students of the stars were selected to hail, first among men, the Holy Child, whose life and death were to present the type of excellence which has sustained the heart of so large a portion of mankind in these later generations. Such marks have been made by the footsteps of man—still, alas, to be spoken of as the ideal man—wherever he is passed through the wilderness of men, and whenever the pygmies stepped in one of those, they felt dilate within the breast somewhat that promised nobler stature and pure blood. They were impelled to forsake their evil ways of decrepit scepticism and covetousness of corruptible possessions. Convictions flowed in upon them. They too raised the cry, God is living now to-day, and all beings are brothers, for they are his children. Simple words enough, yet which only angelic natures can use or hear in their full free sense. These were the triumphant moments. But soon the lower nature took its turn and the era of a truly human life was postponed. Thus is man still a stranger to his inheritance, still a pleader, still a pilgrim. Yet his happiness is secure in the end. And now no more a glimmering consciousness, but assurance begins to be felt and spoken that the highest ideal man can form of his own powers is that which he is destined to attain. Whatever the soul knows how to speak, it cannot fail to obtain— this is the law and the prophets knock and it shall be opened seek and ye shall find it is demonstrated it is a maxim man no longer paints his proper nature in some form and says prometheus had it it is godlike but man must have it it is human however disputed by many however ignorantly used or falsified by those who do receive it The fact of an universal unceasing revelation has been too clearly stated in words to be lost sight of in thought and sermons preached from the text be ye perfect are only sermons of a pervasive and deep searching influence but among those who meditate upon this text there is a great difference of view as to the way in which perfection shall be sought through the intellect say some gather from every growth of life its seed of thought look behind every symbol for its law If thou canst see clearly, the rest will follow. Through the life, say others, do the best thou knowest to-day. Shrink not from frequent error in this gradual fragmentary state. Follow thy light for as much as it will show thee. Be faithful as far as thou canst, in hope that faith presently will lead to sight. Help others without blaming their need of thy help. Love much, and be forgiven. It needs not intellect, needs not experience— says a third. If you took the true way, your destiny would be accomplished in a purer and more natural order. You would not learn through facts of thought or action, but express through them the certainties of wisdom. In quietness yield thy soul to the causal soul. Do not disturb thy apprenticeship by premature effort, neither check the tide of instruction by methods of thy own. Be still. Seek not, but wait in obedience. Thy commission will be given." Could we indeed say what we want? Could we give a description of the child that is lost? He would be found. As soon as the soul can affirm clearly that a certain demonstration is wanted, it is at hand. When the Jewish prophet described the lamb, as the expression of what was required by the coming era, the time drew nigh. But we say not, see not, as yet clearly, what we would. Those who call for a more triumphant expression of love, a love that cannot be crucified, show not a perfect sense of what has already been given. Love has already been expressed, that made all things new, that gave the worm its place and ministry as well as the eagle, a love to which it was alike to descend into the depths of hell or to sit at the right hand of the Father. Yet no doubt a new manifestation is at hand, a new hour in the day of man. We cannot expect to see any one sample of completed being when the mass of men still lie engaged in the sod, or use the freedom of their limbs only with wolfish energy. The tree cannot come to flower till its root be free from the cankering worm, and its whole growth open to air and light. While any one is base, none can be entirely free and noble. Yet something new shall presently be shown of the life of man, for hearts crave if minds do not know how to ask it. Among the strains of prophecy, the following, by an earnest mind of a foreign land, written some thirty years ago, is not yet outgrown, and it has the merit of being a positive appeal from the heart instead of a critical declaration of what man should not do. The ministry of man implies that he must be filled from the divine fountains which are being engendered through all eternity, so that, at the mere name of his master, he may be able to cast all his enemies into the abyss that he may deliver all parts of nature from the barriers that imprison them, that he may purge the terrestrial atmosphere from the poisons that infect it, that he may preserve the bodies of men from the corrupt influences that surround and the maladies that afflict them. Still more, that he may keep their souls pure from the malignant insinuations which pollute and the gloomy images that obscure them, that he may restore its serenity to the word, which false words of men fill with mourning and sadness that he may satisfy the desires of the angels, who await from him the development of the marvels of nature, that, in fine, his world may be filled with God, as eternity is. Another attempt we will give, by an obscure observer of our own day and country, to draw some lines of the desired image. It was suggested by seeing the design of Crawford's Orpheus, and connecting with the circumstance of the American, in his garret at Rome, making choice of this subject, that of Americans here at home showing such ambition to represent the character, by calling their prose and verse Orphic sayings, Orphics. We wish we could add that they have shown that musical apprehension of the progress of nature through her ascending gradations which entitled them to do so. But their attempts are frigid, though sometimes grand. In their strain we are not warmed by the fire which fertilized the soil of Greece. Orpheus was a lawgiver by theocratic commission— He understood nature, and made her forms move to his music. He told her secrets in the form of hymns, nature as seen in the mind of God. His soul went forth toward all beings, yet could remain sternly faithful to a chosen type of excellence. Seeking what he loved, he feared not death nor hell. Neither could any shape of dread daunt his faith in the power of the celestial harmony that filled his soul. It seemed significant of the state of things in this country that the sculptor should have represented the seer at the moment when he was obliged with his hand to shade his eyes. Each Orpheus must to the depths descend, for only thus the poet can be wise, must make the sad Persephone his friend, and buried love to second life arise. Again his love must lose through too much love, must lose his life by living life too true, for what he sought below is past above already done is all that he would do. Must tune all being with his single lyre, must melt all rooks free from their primal pain, must search all nature with his one soul's fire, must bind anew all forms in heavenly chain. If he already sees what must be due, well may he shade his eyes from the far shining view. A better comment could not be made on what is required to perfect man and place him in that superior position for which he was designed, than by the interpretation of bacon upon the legends of the siren coast. When the wise Ulysses passed, says he, he caused his mariners to stop their ears, with wax, knowing there was in them no power to resist the lure of that voluptuous song. But he, the much-experienced man, who wished to be experienced in all, and use all to the service of wisdom, desired to hear the song that he might understand its meaning. Yet distrusting his own power to be firm in his better purpose, he caused himself to be bound to the mast, that he might be kept secure against his own weakness. But Orpheus passed unfettered, so absorbed in singing hymns to the gods, that he could not even hear those sounds of degrading enchantment. Meanwhile, not a few believe, and men themselves have expressed the opinion, that the time is come when Eurydice is to call for an Orpheus, rather than Orpheus for Eurydice, that the idea of man, however imperfectly brought out, has been far more so than that of woman. That she, the other half of the same thought, the other chamber of the heart of life, needs now take her turn in the full pulsation, and that improvement in the daughters will best aid in the reformation of the sons of this age. It should be remarked that, as the principle of liberty is better understood and more nobly interpreted, a broader protest is made in behalf of woman." As men become aware that few men have had a fair chance, they are inclined to say that no women have had a fair chance. The French Revolution, that strangely disguised angel, bore witness in favour of woman, but interrupted her claims no less ignorantly than those of man. Its idea of happiness did not rise beyond outward enjoyment, unobstructed by the tyranny of others. The title it gave was Citoyen, Citoyenne and it is not unimportant to woman that even this species of equality was awarded her. Before she could be condemned to perish on the scaffold for treason, not as a citizen, but as a subject. The right with which this title was then invested a human being was that of bloodshed and license. The goddess of liberty was impure. As we read the poem addressed to her not long since by Beranger, we can scarcely refrain from tears as painful as the tears of blood that flowed when— such crimes were committed in her name. Yes, man, born to purify and animate the unintelligent and the cold, can in his madness degrade and pollute no less the fair and the chaste. Yet truth was prophesied in the ravings of that hideous fever, caused by long ignorance and abuse. Europe is conning a valued lesson from the blood-stained page. The same tendencies, further unfolded, will bear good fruit in this country." Yet by men in this country, as by the Jews when Moses was leading them to the promised land, everything has been done that inherited depravity could do to hinder the promise of heaven from its fulfilment. The cross, here as elsewhere, has been planted only to be blasphemed by cruelty and fraud. The name of the Prince of Peace has been profaned by all kinds of injustice towards the Gentile whom he said he came to save. But I need not speak of what has been done towards the red man. The black man those deeds are the scoff of the world and they have been accompanied by such pious words that the gentlest would not dare to intercede with father forgive them for they know not what they do here as elsewhere the gain of creation consists always in the growth of individual minds which live and aspire as flowers bloom and birds sing in the midst of morasses and in the continual development of that thought the thought of human destiny which is given to eternity adequately to express and which ages of failure only seemingly impede only seemingly and whatever seems to the contrary this country is as surely destined to elucidate a great moral law as europe was to promote the mental culture of man though the national independence be blurred by the servility of individuals though freedom and equality have been proclaimed only to leave room for a monstrous display of slave-dealing and slave-keeping though the free american so often feels himself free like the roman only to pamper his appetites end his indolence through the misery of his fellow-beings still it is not in vain that the verbal statement has been made all men are born free and equal there it stands a golden certainty wherewith to encourage the good to shame the bad the new world may be called clearly to perceive that it incurs the utmost penalty if it reject or oppress the sorrowful brother and if men are deaf the angels hear but men cannot be deaf it is inevitable that an external freedom an independence of the encroachments of other men such as been achieved for the nation should be so also for every member of it that which has once been clearly conceived in the intelligence cannot fail sooner or later to be acted out it has become a law as irrevocable as that of the medes in their ancient dominion men will privately sin against it but the law as expressed by a leading mind of the age tutti fatti a semblanza d'un solo fili tutti d'un solo riscatto in qual ora in qual parti del suolo trascoriamo questa ora vital siam fratelli siam stretti ad un patto maledetto colu. CHE LO infrange, CHE SINTUNDA SUL FINOCCO CHE piange, CHE CONTRISTA UNO SPIRITO IMMORTAL. All made in the likeness of the one, all children of one ransom, in whatever hour, in whatever part of the soil, we draw this vital air, we are brothers, we must be bound by one compact, accursed he who infringes it, who raises himself upon the weak who weep, who saddens an immortal spirit. This law cannot fail of universal recognition. Accursed be he who willingly saddens an immortal spirit, doomed to infamy in later, wiser ages, doomed in future stages of his own being to deadly penance only short of death. Accursed be he who sins in ignorance if that ignorance be caused by sloth. We sicken no less at the pomp than the strife of words. We feel that never were lungs so puffed with the wind of declamation on moral and religious subjects as now. We are tempted to implore those word-heroes, these word-catos, word-christs, to beware of cant, above all things. To remember that hypocrisy is the most hopeless as well as the meanest of crimes, and that those must surely be polluted by it who do not reserve a part of their morality and religion for private use. Landor says that he cannot have a great deal of mind who cannot afford to let the larger part of it lie fallow. And what is true of genius is not less so of virtue. The tongue is a valuable member, but should appropriate but a small part of the vital juices that are needful all over the body. We feel that the mind may grow black and rancid in the smoke, even of altars. We start up from the harangue to go into our closet and shut the door. There inquires the spirit. Is this rhetoric the bloom of healthy blood, or a false pigment artfully laid on? And yet again we know where is so much smoke, must be some fire. With so much talk about virtue and freedom must be mingled some desire for them. That it cannot be in vain that such have become the common topics of conversation among men, rather than schemes for tyranny and plunder, that the very newspapers see it best to proclaim themselves pilgrims, puritans, heralds of holiness." The king that maintains so costly a retinue cannot be a mere boast or carabas fiction. We have waited here long in the dust, we are tired and hungry, but the triumphal procession must appear at last. Of all its banners, none has been more steadily upheld, and under none have more valour and willingness for real sacrifices been shown, than that of the champions of the enslaved African and this band it is, which partly from a natural following out of principles, partly because many women have been prominent in that cause, makes just now the warmest appeal in behalf of woman. Though there has been a growing liberality on this subject, yet society at large is not so prepared for the demands of this party, but that its members are, and will be for some time, coldly regarded as the Jacobins of their day. "'Is it not enough?' cries the irritated trader, that you have done all you could to break up the National Union and thus destroy the prosperity of our country, but now you must be trying to break up Family Union, to take my wife away from the cradle and the kitchen-hearth to vote at polls and preach from a pulpit. Of course if she does such things she cannot attend to those of her own sphere. She is happy enough as she is. She has more leisure than I have—every means of improvement, every indulgence. Have you asked her whether she was satisfied with these indulgences?" "'No, but I know she is. She is too amiable to desire what would make me unhappy, and too judicious to wish to step beyond the sphere of her sex. I will never consent to have our peace disturbed by any such discussions.' "'Consent? You?' "'It is not consent from you that is in question. It is assent from your wife.' "'Am not I the head of my house?' "'You are not the head of your wife.' God has given her a mind of her own. I am the head, and she the heart. God grant you play true to one another, then. I suppose I am to be grateful that you did not say she was only the hand. If the head repress no natural pulse of the heart, there can be no question as to your giving your consent. Both will be of one accord, and there needs but to present any question to get a full and true answer. There is no need of precaution, of indulgence, nor consent. But our doubt is whether the heart does consent with the head, or only obeys its decrees with a passiveness that precludes the exercise of its natural powers, or a repugnance that turns sweet qualities to bitter, or a doubt that lays waste the fair occasions of life. It is to ascertain the truth that we propose some liberating measures. Thus vaguely are these questions proposed and discussed at present. But their being proposed at all implies much thought, and suggests more many women are considering within themselves what they need that they have not, and what they can have if they find they need it. Many men are considering whether women are capable of being and having more than they are and have, and, whether, if so, it will be best to consent to improvement in their condition. End of section three.